You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Today, I have the task of continuing on in the upper room uh, with Jesus and his disciples. Now, 11 disciples. Last week, we unpacked how Jesus had now left the 12. And the end game was in motion. Today's passage is John 13, 31 through 38. Originally, if you are following along in the, uh, the uh, study guides that you have, we were originally going to make this into two distinct sermons. And so if you're following along, you'll have a little bit extra room to write because we're joining uh, what Adam read 31 through 35 and then 36 through 38. So 31 through 38 in total today is what we are going to look at. Today is what commentators consider the last of six sermons of Jesus in the book of John. One of his first sermons is chapter 5 where he describes the authority of the Son. In chapter 6, his sermon is entitled The Bread of Life. Chapter 7, he preaches on the Feast of the Tabernacles. In chapter 8, he preaches, we looked at about a month ago, a month or so ago now, he is the light of the world. And just a few weeks ago in chapter 10, we looked at him preaching on the sheep and the shepherd. Today, John 13, 31, really begins kind of his, his final sermon uh, in his ministry. We know from context that this sermon was primarily for his disciples, those closest to him. This is his longest sermon. This, is, uh, this, this engages from John 13 to the beginning of John 17. We believe from historical context that this was one night, that this happened all in the account of a night, that he's pouring out this wisdom and knowledge to his disciples. A little bit of context. We're hearing some clicking and rattling. It's probably the heater's going to kick on. So, hey, you never know, okay? That knows that raccoon powers and initiated too. Anyway, I want to start off our time digging into John 13 by letting you kind of go down a little bit of the training thought of my, my mind. And so, you know, it's kind of weird up here a little bit. But I, I want you to, I want to first confess something to you. I enjoy good marketing. Okay? My name's Brett, and I enjoy good marketing. Okay? I really like clever commercials, clever little snippets, but what I find myself kind of going back to is slogans or taglines from companies, especially when they're really clever. I, I just really enjoy them because what I think it communicates in a clever slogan, and there are some great ones out there, uh, it, it, it captures the heart, it captures the intent of the company or the business or the entity in just a sentence, just a few words. You can grasp what they're trying to do, their mission, right? I like that. I like the shortness of it. So um, oftentimes I'll be looking on through my phone and I'm like, why did I take a picture of this wall at the supermarket, or why did I take a picture of the side of this semi-truck? It's probably because I found a, a slogan or something, and I was like, oh, that's good. I want to I wanna remember that. So this is a little bit of the uh, back-and-forth audience participation situation that I'm going to share with you. I'm going to share with you a, quick, a couple slogans, some of my favorites, 
And hopefully you'll kind of guess what it is that I'm talking about. First one, this is a layup. The few, the proud. The Marines, of course. Like a good neighbor. Right? Just a sentence that captures, right? and they got some good commercials uh, there too. Okay, now I'm not endorsing any of these products. I just like their, uh, I just like their slogan, just like their tagline. Do you know this one? Turning nights into stories. That's Jack Daniels. Okay, the Tennessee whiskey. Jack Daniels. Turning nights into stories. Again, not endorsing, just telling. I like the slogan. I like the slogan. Okay? Where families travel better together. VRBO. VRBO. Yeah. It's kind of like an Airbnb situation. Uh, this is a little obscure, but I really, really like this one. These last two are two of my favorite slogans. Remember the moment, forget the mess. This is Libman Mops. <laughs> Libman Mops. Remember the moment, forget the mess. Captures their heart. And this is maybe my favorite slogan. Helping others keep their promises. You know that one? That's Old Dominion Freight Trucks. This is a picture of a semis. If you, there's like Schneider, the big orange semi-trucks, and then kind of the greenish semi-trucks. It's called Old Dominion. But I really, really like that. Helping others, helping the world keep their promises to you as the customer, you as the consumer. What I think the heart of God in this passage and the dominant marker of the Christian experience is captured in this text today. So if you will, it's the slogan or the standard of the follower of Christ is laid out in here. Reread one of my all-time favorite books this week and specifically looked at the love of God, the chapter called The Love of God in this book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. He writes this, The love of God is no fitful, fluctuating thing as human love is. Nor is it a mere impotent longing for things that may never be. It is rather a spontaneous determination of God's whole being in an attitude of benevolence and benefaction, an attitude freely chosen and firmly fixed. This picture of God that we see in John chapter 13 is summed up in the person and teaching of Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at today. If you're a note taker, what I want to do as we look, there are three things. These three things are the three directions, the three movements that love takes. First, love moves toward us. Love, move toward, love moves toward us. Secondly, love moves towards each other as the body of Christ. And lastly, love moves towards all people. Let's read and as we read, let's take note of these three movements. Verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him, him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet, little, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, 
So now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A couple things to mention, to take note of in verse 31 and 32. Judas is not with them anymore, and he will not be with them again until that fateful moment when he turns Jesus over. He says, now is the Son glorified. Now is the Son glorified. Just think about that. He is saying this, he pauses, the end game is in motion, Judas leaves, he goes off to say, what you do, do quickly. And now he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Of all the times in his earthly ministry that he could have said this, he says it now. Think about that. Early on in John, when he is baptized, okay, John the Baptist dunks him, and as he rises up out of the waters, the heavens part, and a booming voice cries out, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Could have paused there and said, now is the son of man glorified. Did not. He could have waited on the Mount of Transfiguration, when literally his eternal glory was being pierced through his flesh and shown on earth. He could have done that. He could have said, now is the Son of Man glorified. But he didn't. He could have, when he was feeding the 5,000, or in the Sermon on the Mount, he could have paused and said, he would have got a lot of bang for his buck because a lot of people would have seen him perform this miracle and teach with such authority. And he could have paused and said, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. But he doesn't. He chooses right now, this moment in his ministry, to say this. I think that this is incredible. And I think this shows that Jesus had his eyes on no glory that this world could offer. He had, in fact, his eyes only which, in which he would come, be coming back into perfect communion with the Father again. The most humiliating time of his life is when he's choosing to say now is the son of man glorified what does that speak of the heart of our father of our king well one it shows us that he is deeply deeply concerned so much more about the glory of god than anything that this earth could provide so much so that he was willing to endure what he endured. That's incredible. He uses the verb glorified five times. And I would say these two points are put together for a reason. John's focus was to force us to look at the glory of God through the upcoming cross. He says now, as the end game is initiated, Judas is gone. He's going to bring about everything that comes about here in the next few hours and he says the cross this is the picture where the son of man will be glorified jesus is looking past the circumstances that are about to unfold and toward his future glory i love this summary by john macarthur he says that there is nowhere in all of history where the glories of god the attributes of God come together in a more clear and bold relief than at the cross. 
the fullness of God. His love, His forbearance, His omnipresence, His omnipotence, His wrath and His judgment and His tender love is all on display at the cross. And this is where Jesus says, this is where the Son of Man is glorified. Verse 33, a couple of notes here as well. He starts off by saying, little children. We don't know necessarily if there are little children in his midst in this time. It's not given to us. But we do know that his disciples are with him. And I think, what a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture, again, of his tenderness towards his flock, towards his sheep, towards his beloved ones. And he gives them a restriction. He says, what I'm about to do, where I'm about to go, you cannot come. You cannot come. And so this restriction is temporary, but it's another example of him saying, not physically you can't come where I'm going to come, but spiritually you cannot drink this cup. You cannot drink, you can't go to the places, the lengths that I'm willing to go to endure the wrath of God. You can't come here, but it's a temporary place. It's a temporary time. So what does he say? He says, what what is it that Jesus says to the Jews? Well, this is a callback to John chapter 8. I think I have it up there, but if I don't, John chapter 8, verses 21 through 23, it says this. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, Jesus, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. He goes on in verse 28, he says, So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, a picture of the cross, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. That is what He said to the Jews. The disciples were there, so He's reminding them of what He has already told them. Now, And all of that is pointing towards the cross. The moment when he singularly points out and pauses, this is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now Jesus is going to lay out what is expected of them, the disciples, after he leaves. Here's the bulk. This is the meat of the sermon. Verse 34, read with me. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You're like, hold on a second. A new commandment I give you to love. Is that new? No. It's not really new. In Leviticus and Mosaic Law, Leviticus chapter 19, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's not a new concept, the command of loving your neighbor as thyself, but what Jesus does is he's changing the rules. He's amending this command. And what he's saying, he changes neighbor to 
oneself, I'm sorry, to one another. And he changes yourself as, to as I have loved you. Love one another, not neighbors, love one another, believers, followers, born again, true believers of Christ. Love each other, not as yourself, love in the example as I have loved you. This is very, very important, vitally important. And Jesus presents this as a new standard. And this is where we get the three directions that love flows. First, love flows toward us. This is modeled by how Jesus loved us, just as I have loved you, he says. Begs the question, okay, well, how does he love us? I think that that is something that we could, is worthy of our investigation, right? I think no one in this room would argue. I don't think any church in Mascuda around the area would argue that Jesus loves us. But how? How does he love us? I'm going to steal from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This, few, this, this verse in Philippians is a great verse. It's entitled the Christ example of humility that Paul writes about. His love was willing to endure great humiliation. That's how he loved you, how he loved me. On earth as a human being, he was willing to exchange the glories of heaven, the perfection of heaven, the shalom of heaven with the Father and the Spirit for all eternity past. He was willing to exchange those glories for rags in a manger. He was sacrificial. He emptied himself even to the point of death. His life was full of service. His life, in very tangible ways, blessed people. He washed feet. He fed. He gave shelter. He blessed them. Physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. His life was an act of service in a very real way. He, was, he loves us by being relatable to us. He's able to sympathize. We have a high priest who understands everything that we go through. All of the joys, all of the happiness, all of the funny things, all of the distress and depression and anxiety, he understands. His love is relatable to us. But most importantly, I would argue, he loves us by demonstrating his love. The existence of Jesus shows us the love of God. Just by him existing, coming to earth, shows the love of God. It wasn't just talk. He showed it with his life. This commentator puts it beautifully. I have it up here. It is a distinctive theme of John's gospel that Jesus gave his life in love. 
if we took this element out of John's story, we would have a Jesus who, obedient to the Father, carried out the destiny decreed for him, the divine plan for the world, but we could not believe that he did so in love for the world. It is only because God's love for the world took the concrete, human, incarnate form of Jesus' love for the flesh and blood, particular people who were close to him, that the love of God in him could also reach people who did not know him in the flesh. In Jesus' love for his friends, God's love took human, historical form in order to embrace the world. Amen. I, this reminds me, this reminds me uh, of a wedding, a wedding that I went to a few years ago from two dear friends of mine. They were involved with the, the ministry that Kat and I were a part of, and we had the privilege of seeing these people, um, young, young in their faith, walk through a lot, of, a lot of challenging things with them. You can kind of paint the picture in your mind if you've been to a wedding. Um, beautiful music. The, the, uh, the church that we were in was decked out. It was gorgeous. It was gorgeous. The music had come to a silence, and there was a silence in the room. And then a sweeping melody came forth and swelled up. And at this moment, the doors swung open, and the beautiful bride is in the hallway of the door, walking out. It was an incredible scene. You know, this is, this is the kind of the, the moment in the, in the wedding where I can, you can kind of get choked up a little bit, if you're honest, right? It's like, oh my gosh, right? Just stunning, stunning situation. And as she begins to walk down the aisle, there is a glaring difference in this situation. This is typically where the bride-to-be is escorted by her dad down the aisle, and given as a picture of that they will leave and cleave the father and mother and be joined in one flesh to her soon-to-be husband. This is the picture that we get in most weddings, but one of the things that we had walked with, walked through with our dear sister, the bride-to-be, was she lost her father. She lost her father. He was no longer with us just years prior. So at this moment, she got to the edge of the seats She's walking down the aisle. This beautiful melody is playing. She is stunning, and she stops. And at this point, her husband-to-be, the, the bridegroom-to-be, leaves the stage and walks down the aisle and goes and gets her. He puts his arm out, and he escorts her up to the stage for the ceremony. I'm like, boohooing in my seat what a picture the thing is the difference is is my sister here she wanted to be married and her husband to be pursued her and brought him brought her and then back you see friends the difference is that we don't want it when jesus tracks us down his love is demonstrated in the fact that he, he loves us while we hate Him. This is incredible love. This is life-changing, generation-shaping love that you would lay down your life for someone who hates you. 
I love that picture. We more fully understand the love of Christ for us as we more fully understand the depth of our sin and depravity because in that we can more fully see the lengths that Jesus was willing to go to rescue us and reconcile us back into right relationship with God. This is why every single week that you're here and every single week, God willing in the future, that we are going to pause during our worship set and say, God, we have fallen short. We do not stack up. We do not measure up. But praise be to God that in your grace and in your mercy you have looked over our sin and looked toward the cross of Jesus who has washed us and cleansed us of how we have fallen short and he hasn't. Every week we are going to pause and do that because if there's anything to be reminded of, it's that love that was demonstrated for us. Jesus relentlessly pursues us in love for the glory of God and the joy of his people. There is, J.I. Packer again, he says, there is tremendous relief. Listen to this, I love this. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me. Amen. There's tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is based at every point on prior knowledge about the worst of me. This is the love that is demonstrated towards us. Now, that love doesn't just stay there. but He commands us to love one another. The second point, love moves toward one another. This one another is believers in Christ, people we break bread with that we see in the early church. Some applications here of loving one another is everything I just laid out, right? Everything I just laid out. God God is not a part-time lover, okay? He's not a part-time lover, therefore we ought not be. Love, Love towards one another is saying, I'm committed to you, I'm committed to see you the way that God sees you. All your blemishes and all of your dysfunction and all of your sin, the way we love one another, a way that we love one another in application is by saying, I'm choosing to see you the way God sees you. Paul took this command very, very seriously. Uh, Here's Paul's list. There's a great article by uh, Andy Stanley, and the article is entitled, We Ought to One Another One Another. Okay? And this is just a few examples, but check this out. This is all from the possible. To submit to one another. To um, forgive one another. To encourage one another to restore one another, to care for one another, bear with one another, carry one another's burdens. I have more. I just didn't put them on here. Ten ways to love. Okay? This is, I have chapter and verse for this. If you want it, I can send it to you. You can listen without interrupting. You can speak without accusing. You can give without sparing. Pray without ceasing. Answer without arguing. 
Share without pretending. Enjoy without complaining. Trust without wavering. Forgive without punishment. And promise without forgetting your promise. These are all ways very, very clearly laid out of how, as Jesus loves us, is the model. We love one another. How might this play out in your life is through convictions and maybe safeguards that you put in your life. Because you so love your family and your extended family as the body of Christ, your life should and ought look different than how you love everything else okay for example convictions are built in order that love for one another is protected okay from early on Kat and I my wife we we said that as we are married because I married her my relationship to every woman on the planet is now different and she says that her relationship with every man on the entire planet is now different so that should look according. Some safeguards to protect, because we love you, is I'll never be in a room with another woman. I'll never be alone in a room with another woman. She will never be in a room alone with another man. If you ever notice, uh, if I've ever texted you, ladies, uh, my wife is on the text message thread with us. It's a group chat. Or if it's just between me and you, she sends the message. Now, is that to scare you? No, it's because I love you. And I want to protect and provide you with safety and knowing that your pastors care deeply about you and your marriage and your purity and your everything. That's one way. That's one way we can use convictions. There's a- another way of uh, some guys in, in my GC, completely by their own initiative, they meet together late on Wednesday nights to memorize and rehearse Scripture. Because they love one another. And they want to see one another pushed forward and advanced in their relationship with Christ. As Jesus loves us, the natural overflow is that we love one another. Firstly, we love one another. There's a little, uh, when, my, when my grandmother passed away, um, she grew up during the Depression, and so like she was made for the show Hoarders, okay? Uh, just a pack rat, and I mean, I can't tell you the things that we uh, got rid of, and it's insane but one of the things that I just will cherish she had all these little tchotchkes and little uh, trinkets and things like that and it's like more is better no Um, there's this one little placard and it was plastic white with red light red writing on it and all it said was you don't have to understand me you just have to love me That was a great reminder to me as I'm cleaning up all this what I consider junk. I don't understand. Why did she ever do this? But that same can be true for us. We need not understand someone in order to love them. We don't. 
Love moves toward us. It moves towards each other. And then in effect, love moves toward all people. Verse 35, it says, By this, by you loving one another the way that I have loved you, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John MacArthur also once said, We are known by our character, by our affection, by the things that are most important to us and precious to us. In a word, we are known by what we love. He goes on to say, Fruit of the Spirit, love is a fruit of the Spirit, that love of the, or, sorry, fruit of the Spirit is evidence of the Spirit's presence. And when the evidence of the Spirit's presence is there, then that is evidence that you have been transformed. That you are no longer yours, but you have been bought by a price. So therefore, you are a new creature. The old has gone and the new has come. Which is evidence, again, to the world, to all people, that the power and glory of God is incredible. The way that we respond when we see and sense the love of Christ in us, on us, for us, and it's poured out to the other believers who experience the same love of Christ, the world takes notice. All people will know we are disciples of Jesus by how we love one another. And they, in turn, are benefactors of that love as well. This, uh, the other day, I was in the, uh, in the living room, and we, kinda, we got this stool. I'm not sure if it was a great purchase uh, yet. We got this stool for my son, Beck, to, uh, so he can like, get up and like, get in the pantry without our help, you know, so he can reach the things. I, again, I don't know if it's a good purchase or not. One of the things he loves to do is drag it over and put it by the sink and like wash his hands like mom and dad do and play and then he ends up playing in the water and you know soon it will be like filling up water balloons and squirt guns and stuff but I said hey Beck while you're over there get me can you give me a cup of water my cup's right there he said yeah dad dad yeah dad yeah of course and what does he do he fills up the water from the sink and it is just like completely to the top right And he's just stumbling over, right? Do you think that the the path that he walked was dry? Of course not. But man, this is a great picture. That out of the overflow of the love that we have been shown in Christ, he is seeking to love me, his dad. The floor gets wet too. And in the same way, as we are loved by our Father in heaven, and I seek to love you, Willis, the world will be blessed, and they will know that we are disciples of Jesus too. Love moves toward us. It moves in and amongst us, and it moves out towards all people. In his book, Knowing God, 
J.I. Packer ends uh, by challenging, and I, re- I was like, wow, that is, wanted to, wanted to challenge you with it as well. It says this, could an observer learn from the quality and degree of love that I show to others anything at all about the greatness of God's love to me? can't say amen you gotta say ooh, right could an observer looking at me in my life in my family could they learn anything at all about the greatness of god's love that's a challenging word the world is not so much convinced of our religion or our faith or our doctrine or even the content of what we believe but they are convinced of the power of it. When they see the power of God's love manifest in the people of God, that's when people are like, what is going on over there? What is going on in that, in the greenhouse over there, man? What is, what is happening with Joseph, man? What is going on? That's when the world is convinced. I think to summarize these three points, why does Jesus say this? Well, he's God. He can say whatever he wants to say, and it will be right and true and pure and perfect. But why does he say this? I believe what I find interesting is that God isn't calling us to do something that he isn't and hasn't already been doing. From eternity past, the Trinity's example has been a love, a mutual beneficial love for one another. And so the example, loving one another, is just what he has already been doing for all of eternity. And then he calls us to do the same. Let's keep reading. We're going to wrap up here. Verse 36 through 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are we going? Or where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The NIV translation of this uh, passage, verse 38, I kind of like it a little bit more because Jesus says, Will you really? Will you really lay down your life? And instead of saying, the crow will have, you will deny me three times, the NIV says, you will disown me three times. I kind of like this a little bit better, especially as we compare the relationship of this betrayal and the one we read about last week with Judas and his betrayal. We can see some similarities, but also some stark differences. Verse 36 is a prophecy about the martyrdom of Peter. It says, you, you can't go now, but you will. You will. Jesus was the only, and, and again, I want to call back to what I was saying, is Jesus is not phys- saying physically you can't go where I'm going in, into this specific part of the Garden of Gethsemane. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is Jesus was the only sinless sacrifice for the sins of the world. Peter, you can't do that. You cannot 
atone like I am going to atone. And I want to remind you that all of this is baked into the context of like the area surrounding them. It was ripe. Like it stank. They're preparing for Passover. Okay? What's happening during Passover? There's a lot of animals being slaughtered. There's a lot of blood on the streets. It's, a, it's ripe. Okay? This again is a picture of the sacrifice, the blood that will be shed for them soon on the cross. Verse 37. I believe Peter was sincere in, in this uh, moment. Um, I just lost my spot. Here we go. I believe he was sincere when he said, like, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. But as we study further uh, into chapter 18, which we will get to in the new year, uh, we'll look at this, but ultimately Peter had no idea about himself in this moment. And Jesus being a prophet, understanding what was about to unfold with his disciples and the scattering of them, he knew but it wasn't the end of the story for, um, for Peter. A little tease into that sermon that it's going to be exciting to walk about. If you look at the response of Jesus to Judas after his betrayal, well, I'm sorry, after when Jesus predicts Judas's betrayal, what does he say? What you're doing, do it quickly. And how does he respond after he predicts correctly peter's betrayal look at look in your bibles uh chapter 14 verse 1 what does it say let let not your hearts be troubled let not your hearts be troubled this word of comfort to his brother it's incredible but again we'll look at that Jesus's work was soon coming to a close, but the disciples' work was just beginning. In conclusion, we are known by our love. We are known by our love. The extent of this love, how far does it go? Well, it first goes towards us, then towards the brothers and sisters in the faith. The example of this love is Christ as I have loved you, he says, love sacrificially, love humbly, because of his great love with which he gave himself up for us. We ought give up ourself for our brothers and sisters. And lastly, the effect of this love is that all of humanity, all people, will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love serves as the marker, the litmus test, the hallmark, the standard, the benchmark, whatever other word you could use. It is how the world knows that we belong to Jesus. So, that's a tall task in and of ourselves, but praise be to God that we aren't left alone to do it by ourselves. We are empowered by the Spirit, by the breaking of bread and teaching and encouragement of one another. Let's pray.